Hello and welcome. I'm Roxana, the founder of Conscious Enterprises, and this conversation is with Luke Story of the Lifestylist Podcast. Um, if you don't already listen to the Lifestylist Podcast, you probably will after this. Um, Luke is such an interesting guy. Um, Luke Story is probably one of the most extreme and obsessive, yet also astoundingly knowledgeable and intuitive and charismatic people out there, especially in the biohacking world. Um, above all, his entrepreneurial drive um, has been apparent along his tumultuous journey to where he is today. Um, from a sordid past of substance abuse and drug dealing, which he speaks about with great refreshing humor and honesty, um, to complete sobriety and building two successful businesses that he runs today. Um, Luke is transforming his propensity for addictive behaviors into a platform to expose the world to the most innovative, sometimes wacky, yet effective practices for achieving the ultimate lifestyle um, by optimizing health, wellness, and consciousness. Um, he's a former fashion stylist in Hollywood um, and founded the first ever School of Style. Um, and he still continues to co-manage that as he uh, pursues his true passion of biohacking um, with the lifestylist. Um, there's so much more ahead of Luke. It's apparent um, from his drive and how big his brand is getting. Um, so please enjoy this conversation. You'll laugh, you'll cry. <laughs> he spans across so many different categories. Um, we talk about how he used to work for Aerosmith and how they inspired him to stay sober. Um, he discloses his three-phase business model for success, um, his fast-track to monetization, and also his most valuable biohacks. Um, so please enjoy, please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're on LinkedIn. Please subscribe and check out our website, www.conscious.enterprises. Enjoy. Do you have any questions for me before we start? No, or? I love being unprepared when I'm interviewed. Yeah, I, just I figured. Think I yeah, you're pretty good. Even people, there. like, if I go to a talk, they send me, like, the summary of this and that. I, li I literally never even open the emails. I'm just... <laughs> good. We'll have, like a, we'll have a much better result if I just am intuitively uh, responsive. So, yeah, I'm all yours. I think so, too. Okay. So, Luke Story, thank you so much for being part of Conscious Enterprises. Um, I've been listening to your podcast, I think almost maybe since the beginning. Um, and it's been really incredible to watch you flourish and gain, you're at what, a million downloads or a million subscribers now. Um, yeah. And yeah, you have a, a really a way with um, showing, you know, biohacking and wellness to the world that makes it, you know, approachable and easy to understand, which I love. Um, so, you know, the point of Conscious Enterprises is to talk about you as a business person, as an entrepreneur. Um, I want to hear about all the things that you are working on. It sounds like you're kind of juggling a lot at the moment. Um, tell me about the Lifestylist podcast first. God, yeah, there is a lot going on. When you put it like that, I'm like, oh, my God, where do I start? I, I tend to get myself in, I don't want to say over my head because everything gets done, but... I do things so in, intensely that I, I create a lot of work out of 
projects that could be somewhat simple. For example, the recording that I did today with Light Watkins, my guest, I was running a little bit behind and I could have just set up two microphones and just had a conversation and called it a day. But I'm like, if he's going to be here, I'm going to make a YouTube video with my video camera. I'm going to post to my Facebook group uh, on my iPad. Then I have a spare iPhone that I use for Instagram Live like I'm doing right now on this one. And so I kind of just maximize everything, um, which is what you're seeing. So, yeah, there's a lot of productivity going on. But the Lifestylist podcast, I started, uh, I launched the first one June 6, 2016. So I'm creeping up in a few months here on my two-year mark and the idea with the podcast was to share with the world all of the things, and there are many of the things that I've learned about health and wellness uh, on the physical plane, as well as spiritual and metaphysical things that I've been exploring and practicing for the past 21 years. So there are all these people that I've read books by and listened to on other podcasts and listened to on audio programs and watched their videos. And uh, I know that a lot of people are largely unaware of some of these people because Many of them are on the obscure side, and if you're not really into that chosen topic, be it meditation or biohacking or whatever, you'd likely never come across their work, especially because my background is in the fashion and entertainment industry, so a lot of my sort of scene um, and following on social media and stuff like that were largely unaware of some of the things that I was into on the side, so it was um, a big sort of pivot that I did at 45 years old and just decided to kind of reinvent myself. Um, I mean, even though I was into all of this stuff privately, I never tried to make a business out of it or anything like that. So the podcast was my first um, foray into seeing how the public would respond to my point of view on building the ultimate lifestyle and just sharing the things that I've discovered that have really helped me over the years. It seems like they're they're soaking it up, so that's good. Um, you know what? It's it is. It's yeah. it's really good timing. You know, it's just it's sort of funny when I started. You know, we can talk about the fashion school that I own too, because that's another yes, huge part there. of my life. But when I started the fashion school, uh, no one really knew what a fashion stylist was, and I'd been doing that professionally for ten years at that point. And when I started oh, the wow. school. I started to see that there was this trend where more and more people wanted to do that as a career, but there was nowhere to go to really learn how to do it. No one in the industry would let you in if you were an outsider. It was very insulated. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I did my first class on November 8th, 2008. And November 9th, 2008 was the launch of a little show called The Rachel Zoe Project. And so, yeah, it's crazy, yeah. right? I, I yeah. didn't know that until years later. It just I started the school and I was like, wow, all of a sudden everyone wants to do what I do for a living. Yeah. And uh, it's worked much the same way when I made the decision that I wanted to teach people about all the things that I've learned through my podcast um, that I realized, oh, my God, like everyone in the world and especially a lot of younger people. I'm 47 now, so there are people that I'm like, wow, they're kids that are in their late teens or early 20s or whatever, and they're super into herbalism and Ayurveda and acupuncture and float tanks and biohacking and meditation and ayahuasca right. and like all of this stuff. I mean, it's it's like taking care of yourself <laughs> now is trendy, which is weird and great at the same time yeah but i feel like oh my god i had really good timing because i'm an og with so much of this stuff being into it for so many years i just take it for granted like duh everyone knows (laughs) the stuff i know but i'm I'm realizing i actually have a a pretty rich body of knowledge and experience that also happens to be really popular at this moment so it's a 
it's been a, another fortuitous kind of timing thing for me to pursue this as a business rather than just being and improve my own life and the lives of my close friends and family. Awesome. Yeah, so tell me about um, how you first, I got started, got started with your first business, School of Style, because I know you had a little bit of, uh, I'll let you tell the story about how it all kind of sure. came to be. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's cool, man. I it's School of Style is like my firstborn baby, you know, and I'm, yeah. I feel so fortunate uh, for the timing and fortunate that a year into it, I I uh, got a business partner, my partner Lauren Messiah, who's just been hugely instrumental in growing the business and sort of filled in the gaps for the things that I was lacking um, as a business owner and entrepreneur. But yeah, I just, you know, the bottom line is I'm not a great employee. It's <laughs> hard for me to be motivated to help someone else build their vision, you know? And so I, I was an assistant fashion stylist for a few years and uh, I was pursuing music. So I wasn't really motivated to become a big stylist myself. I watched many of my peers like Monica Rose and um, people like that, that are now, you know, literally the biggest stylists in the world. And I was like, good for them. I don't, I'm not trying to be that stressed out. So I was just playing music. I'd go on tour and then I'd work as an assistant stylist. But because it wasn't my dream, I, I enjoyed that role because I right. could still go pursue my dream and be creative and make music and be in, do my meditation retreats and all the stuff I was doing. Right. Um, so that at, was. Would you say at that point, um, that was when you were also dealing with a lot of substance abuse problems and things like that? Right? That was before. Oh, yeah, okay. that's a little earlier in the journey. I yeah. got sober when I was 26 years old in 1990. Actually, I just it was just 21 years on February 15th. That's my the anniversary of like the first day I woke up and didn't put anything in my veins um, yeah. other than non-mind-altering herbs. <laughs> yeah. I still put a lot of those in there, um, sometimes intravenously, actually, um, strangely <laughs> enough. But no, I, I had I had gotten past all that. Well, I don't say past, but I was you know I was working on myself, and that's really how I became a stylist in the first place because I got sober and I was. I mean, I had dropped out of high school, and the only jobs I ever had were being a waiter, uh, at which I became totally unemployable at a certain point because I just literally couldn't show up anywhere oh, and not wow. be too wasted to perform even that sometimes you know menial task. And then I was a drug dealer. I drove prostitutes around and collected their money on oh calls. I mean, I did really weird stuff, most yeah. of it illegal. And so I guess I was, you know what, actually, yeah. it's funny, I say School of Style is my first entrepreneurial venture, but actually dealing drugs was my first one. It's, you know, it's kind that of funny, counts. but I was really good at marketing. You know, I sold yeah. weed and mushrooms and stuff, and I had really good strategies that I I think, looking back, I'm like, I was like, actually pretty smart, because what I would do is I would have, um, I wouldn't just sell one grade of weed. I would have five or six different levels at all times. So I have really cheap, okay. inexpensive, you know, we used to call it like gas tank weed from Mexico. Literally, sometimes it smelled like gas because it was oh, smuggled in gas tank. Gosh. I mean, super toxic, moldy, yeah. really crappy weed. And then I'd have the most high end chronic, <laughs> like legit weed. And then I'd have a few middle ranges. And so I was a really popular dealer in Hollywood. I sold to a lot of the big, you know, famous musicians in the neighborhood wow. that will remain unnamed uh, for their own anonymity <laughs> right. and protection. But, uh, 
Yeah, I was really good at it. And I was really good at marketing. I would go to parties and I would like post up in the middle of the party and I would just start blazing huge joints and just I'd get a huge crowd around me and then I'd start passing out my little cards or whatever and my <laughs> phone would be blown up. So that was my first foray. But um, I digress. I did eventually clean up my act. But how yeah. I, I got into being a stylist was um, I had a friend that I'd met in the early 90s when I was doing a little like modeling and stuff. And her name was Kikai Mingus. And she's still around but is no longer a stylist. But she was a stylist. And I was homeless when I got sober because that's how I rolled. And I didn't have anywhere to stay. And so she offered me a house-sitting gig to take care of her oh, dog wow. while she toured for two or three months with Tina Turner. And so... I took over her really beautiful apartment in Koreatown here in L.A. And it was like the nicest apartment I think I'd ever been in, let alone slept in. I was like, it was like, it was like uh, Beverly Hillbillies, you know what I mean? Oh, my I was God, like, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, it's like a two-bedroom just for her? You know, it was like, I was so ghetto uh, at the time. But as I, yeah. as fate would have it, I was staying there in her place and almost killed her dog. And I mean, God, oh, God. we could go on for an hour just with all the mishaps of yeah. early sobriety. And just, I was so damaged and deranged from just harming myself for so right. long that it was, I was barely functional. But lucky for me, she didn't know anyone else in LA because she just moved here from New York. So she came back in town. I was still staying there. I got a little apartment and she's like, oh, guess what? Um, I got booked as Aerosmith stylist and she landed that client. So yeah. here I am like two or three months sober. I can barely put a sentence together. I'm just totally brain dead, totally I incapable of like taking care of myself as an adult uh, because I never had really. And she, God bless her, was desperate enough to hire me to be her assistant. And so I jumped right in and was like, uh, you know, I was a musician, so I was playing in bands. And then my day job was like working for Aerosmith. It was just the weirdest wow. life ever. But what was really cool and one of those, again, an another beautiful gift from the universe is they happened to be sober at the time. And so I would, you know, oh, take Aerosmith a few minutes. sober. Yeah. Which they were like some of my childhood heroes. I grew up in yeah. the 70s. So it was like Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, ACDC. I mean, those were the bands. That was right. the shit. What a and rarity so, to fall upon like a sober rock and roll band. Isn't that crazy? It and it actually crazy. really it really helped me and inspired me because right. I was I felt like such a square and a nerd for yeah. quitting drugs, even though it was so ludicrous because I was actually such a loser because I did drugs. <laughs> uh, but I, I felt like that was part of my identity and it was like I'm a musician, I'm Hollywood, I'm cool, like I, I live in the underground, like I was really into the dark side, you know, wow. and the just the crime and bad neighborhoods and just danger and weird vibes and weird toxic stuff and so to see people that were successful and wealthy and living the dream they were huge at that time this is like the late 90s you know okay. they were having a comeback and yeah and my, never forget kika it was really sweet of her uh one day she I, w I went over to the sunset marquee which is where we we would like post up and that's where the band stayed and we had a big suite to keep all the wardrobe and it was my job to kind of hang around there. And I even slept there sometimes because I was almost I'd like crash out in their room and order filet mignon room service. I mean, it was like you can't understand how dope that was for me coming from where I came from, you know. Right. Uh, but anyway, one day she's like, hey, we're over here. It's kind of a down day. I'm just hanging out with Steven in his bungalow. If you want to come hang out and like really meet him because I've been working with them, but I never... I was like, here's your pants, sir. You know, like right. I never interfaced with them and right. got to know them or anything. And it was one of the most cool moments in my life. You know, I was like, yeah, I'll be right there. And I and I went over and just 
hung out with him for a few hours and talked about how to be sober and play in a band and that it's actually really cool to be sober. You don't have to be embarrassed, he would tell me. And I didn't have to be ashamed and I could still play in bands and like be rock and roll and be cool and have tattoos, but just not be a junkie. And it was revelatory to me at the time and it was really inspiring. If and when I run into Steven, um, I can't wait to share that with him that he really helped me because I, I was yeah. like, wow, I could go play in a band and still be kind of normal, but just not have to behave in those ways that I was. And I didn't have to live in the darkness in order to be cool or to be rock and roll. So, right. so that's how I got into styling. And, uh, and then I worked for her and a number of other stylists for years until eventually I, you know, it became ridiculous that I wasn't a key, what you call a key stylist. At a certain point, my friends and everyone in the industry is like, uh, why are you still assisting? And it was partially because I was pursuing music, but it was also just low self-worth and low motivation. Yeah. Uh, but eventually I broke out of that and became my own my own man, so to speak, and started picking up my own clients and was working with Kanye West and the Foo Fighters and oh, cool. um, No Doubt and all these big bands and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, through the mid-2000s to the late 2000s, I guess that would have been. And anyways, um, 10 years into my career... It was the um, digital music kind of crashed, and so a lot of the budgets on the types of jobs that I was working on started to just get killed because record sales died. Like that was like Napster and all that stuff. Right, right. When music went digital, the music industry just tanked. Right. And so I was like, shit, they're not giving me enough money on my job, these music videos and stuff, to hire assistants. So I started hiring interns that I didn't have to pay. Right. And I was like, oh, this is dope for them. I bring them on some huge music video, they get to learn and get that experience. And and I get help that the label won't pay for, you know? And so I was like, God, so many kids like apply to these job postings I would put on Craigslist. I'd literally have to run home from work and like shut the ad down. Yeah. Because email would be like broke, it'd break the internet. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like so many people. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> there's this demand there. There's no one to teach them. None of the fashion schools taught styling. No other stylists were ever going to invite this very competitive industry so i thought you know what i'll i had been going to like real estate seminars and boot camps and things like that okay and someone as someone who really didn't do well in school i just hated it it's not like the way schools are set up our education system is not in alignment with the way my brain works right but i really like seminars i like deep dives like going in for a weekend and doing 12 hours a day and just go hardcore and just walking away with the information and and the ability to apply it. So I thought, oh, I could do my own boot camps or my own seminars where I give people my 10 years worth of experience in a really short um, period of time and then actually connect them with jobs instead of just sending them out on their own. And so I started, yeah, I had my first class. I think there was like 12 people in there and I had a janky little website. It looked like a freaking (laughs) Nigerian money laundering scheme. I mean, it's totally not legit at all. What year Um, was this? What's that? What year was this? This would have been 2008. 2008, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was about 10 years or so into my career. So we're in okay. our 10th year now. Yeah, wow. and uh, and we, I can tell you more about how that's evolved because uh, it's pretty amazing yeah. uh, what we've been able to accomplish. I'm very grateful for it. But anyway, I launched the class and I was like, oh my God, this is working. And so I started adding more dates and then I moved from you know the first house I borrowed like a a cool house in the Hollywood Hills that a friend of mine owned as a vacation rental. And so he let me borrow it and I did a couple classes there. Then I moved into like a real estate office in Culver City, which was super ratchet. 
And then eventually, uh, because I was signed with uh, the agency at Smashbox Studios, I started renting space from them so I could bring the students into these just super high-end, legit photo studios. And there's celebrities running around doing photo shoots. And it was a really cool experience for the uh, for the students in School of Style, schoolofstyle.com. Uh, just started really blowing up and it was just largely due to timing and scarcity of that information and I was able to not only teach students how to get into the industry and really behind the curtain the behind the scenes of how it really works but then I would contact all of my really famous stylist friends and get them to hire our students and that was like that was the the real thing that that was the power move because I could then use that in my marketing like Hey, Jane, this girl Jane Smith took my class, and I just called Monica Rose and was like, hey, you should hire this girl to work with you and the Kardashians. And now my student rolls in from North Dakota at 20 years old, doesn't even know anything about fashion, and the next week she's on a Beyonce video or working with wow. Kim Kardashian or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like rags to riches stories, just day in, day out. We, we can't even keep track of the success stories of our students because there's so many of them. How many students do you have a, now? Oh, we've trained over 3,000 students in our live classes. Wow, that's amazing. Starting, yeah, so at one point we were doing eight different U.S. cities. We kind of go on tour, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then we realized this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, I miss home. Yeah. So then we just, we just narrowed it down to um, L.A. and New York, and we did that for about eight years or so. And then on the first of this year, 2018, we made the decision to move the business into a 100% online model. And so now all of our students learn uh, through like a private Facebook group and then an interface where there's different video modules and downloadable PDFs and things like that. And so we have uh, one class that we just launched. It was actually January was our best month in 10 years. Wow. 100% online. Yeah, it was a huge home run for us. Uh, and that was our personal stylist course where people learn how to work with executives and people in the private sector rather than the fashion styling where you dress models and celebrities and things like that. So, yeah, so it's my partner, Lauren, and I are both like kicking ourselves <laughs> like, God, why didn't we do this five years ago? You know, but it happened when it happened. But yeah. she was pushing to kill the live classes for a few years. And I was like, no, oh, we, really? we, we, we won't. Yeah, yeah, I just that's our classes were five grand for a nine day course, yeah, you know, it's so it's change. like. You see those signups coming in your email, ding, ding, ding. You're like, oh, sick. We yeah. just made 25 grand. It's hard to just go, yeah, let's shut that faucet off right. and hope that this other faucet right. that we're turning works. Yeah. It's kind of like, shit, what yeah. if people don't want to learn online? So right. thankfully, more students want to learn online. And we were able to, of course, lower the price substantially and, right. and, and also increase our net profits exponentially because the it's like a weird conundrum with School of Style as a business owner is – the demographic that we're selling our classes to doesn't have any money. Right. And so even $5,000 to them is a lot of money to come take a course for nine days. But we're holding our classes at Pier 59 Studios in New York City, Smashbox, right. Milk Studios in L.A. I mean, it's like a super high-end luxury experience that we're giving them. So really, our class should have been probably twenty-five grand per student, honestly. Like, that would have been the business model, the right margins. So... It was profitable, and we did good with gross sales, but our net was never what we wanted it to be just because our overhead was so high. And so now what we're seeing is like, oh, it's all those 
first class flights to New York and staying like in really nice hotels and we get to New York and renting out these beautiful studios and it's school of style. It's got to be luxurious and high end. We're not going to go to like the freaking like, you know, uh, Newark, New Jersey airport Marriott <laughs> or some shit, you know, it's like, it's no, we're going yeah, to Manhattan doing it at the dopest studio in the city because yeah. we want parents, uh, students to have that visceral experience of really being there in the middle of it. But, yeah. uh, it's not, really scalable and profitable so that's where we are now with school of style and it's and why really do you, why exciting. do you think school of style um was so successful if you know was it you know the partnership was it that you just like love styling people like what do you think that ma made it so special because there's so many entrepreneurs that you know jump into whatever careers they have at hand and you know they don't really make it like that you know well I'm a really dedicated person when I put my mind to something. Yeah. Uh, once I decide I'm going to do something, there's not a lot that can get in my way. So that's part of it. Another thing was just timing. And I think my initial vision of just realizing that there was this huge demand in the industry and that none of the fashion schools were serving that demand at all and still to this day really aren't. Right. So I even went and worked at, at FITM for a while as an instructor here, which is a big fashion school. It's kind of like the L.A. equivalent of FIT or Parsons or something oh, like that. It. Right. Okay. And that was years into School of Style. I just I got offered the job and I thought, yeah, I'd be just as a personal challenge of someone that dropped out of high school, didn't go to college. I'm going to go be an instructor or professor at a fashion school, the biggest fashion school really on the West Coast. I was like, that's a cool just thing to explore. So I went and yeah. did that and realized just the model of teaching of traditional fashion schools is antiquated and ineffective. Interesting. And yeah, it's just the way that they teach is not, it's not real. It's huh. theoretical. It's not, it's not based in like the way things currently are in the industry. And so because schools like that in general, probably. yeah, it's, yeah. it's like you have the instructors or people that like way back when were doing the thing that they're teaching and then they retired from that, <laughs> be they an author or whatever. Right. Now they teach English or something, right? Well, I was like going on styling jobs for the first, I don't know, you know, eight years or something of school of style. I was an active stylist, so I could give very current information. And then also another thing that con contributed to our success was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the relationships that I had within the industry from just being in there and grinding and, and meeting so many people that I was able to be the bridge between our students and the industry in a way that no fashion school would be able to do because they're a big corporate entity and I'm just this guy, Luke, like, oh, everyone loves Luke. Yeah, Luke's story. He's cool. Yeah. He's <laughs> going to send me a bunch of interns. You know, right. they're they're stoked. The student's really happy. The huh. stylist and the styling agencies really responded well to what I was doing because I was then sending them assistants and interns that had the right kind of training. Like I only train the things that they really need to know when they're starting out. Yeah. So you take like a really green intern and throw them at a stylist like B. Ockerland or Lori Goldstein or whomever, just badasses that are like 20, 30 year veterans and a new kid comes into their set who's, you know, got no experience, but they know all of this inside information, like how to do sample requests and international shipping and customs forms and nuanced skills that you only learn if you're doing the job. And so right. I identified what those more cloaked and nuanced skills were and emphasized teaching those to make our students more marketable 
to you know the veterans in the industry. So that was part of it. And then thirdly and lastly, I would say that I was just really fortunate also to get a great business partner. You know, a year into starting the school, it was kind of just a side thing for me. I was still doing styling. I thought, cool. I'll make a couple extra grand here and there and whatever. I just get in and mentor these kids and it was fun and I enjoyed passing knowledge along. But when my partner Lauren came to take the class as a student, she emailed me like the, I think it was a Saturday and Sunday class and she emailed me Sunday night. Hey, you probably don't remember me, but I was in your class this weekend. I think you have and you have no social media presence and I would really love to intern for you and help you. And I was like, word, shit. She kind of convinced <laughs> me that I needed her help. So I hired her first as an intern, uh, working on styling jobs and with the school. Oh, and then started, that. That's very Yeah, cool. and then started paying her as an employee of the school. And then eventually, like, she just brought so much value uh, that it became clear that she was more than an employee and then yeah. became my business partner and also eventually my girlfriend. We were in a relationship for five years. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, I think that the value of just getting really lucky and getting someone who is so smart and talented and such a hard worker, A, and B, someone that was so, like our skill set and our talents are so opposite that we complete each other in a, in a powerful way in terms of a business. That said, when you're also that different from someone, you really, <laughs> it's very difficult it's and there's been, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of close calls where we're like, wow, this is not going to work because right. we are so different. You know, right. she's a morning person. I'm a night person. I make up life literally second by second as I go. I don't know what the hell I'm doing half the time as you've seen trying to schedule with me. Like I'm a basket case. <laughs> Lauren plans out like her yeah. next year, every hour oh, of every wow. day. So we had to really learn communication and learn each other's personality types and take a lot of personality tests and things like that to learn how to integrate together and be supportive of one another and, and use our strengths and not drive each other crazy for the, the areas or personality traits in which one of us might be deficient. You know what I mean? Cool. So I think that was the third piece is like having a really badass, smart, woman yeah. as a partner who could really uh, take yeah. the vision to a place in many cases that I didn't really see it going. Yeah. Like for example, in the, after she was there maybe a year, I was like, yeah, you know what? Someday I'll probably do a class in New York. She's like, let's just book the space and do it. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, <laughs> just get plane tickets. Fuck it. You know, I was like, okay. We went to, we booked the Ace Hotel in Midtown and oh, wow. we just started yeah, we just started. We use their like their uh, conference room downstairs. It's like they use oh, it as a nightclub. I think it's called Liberty Hall. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. Uh, yeah, and so uh, yeah, we were just like, oh, you can just do that. All right, <laughs> but I might not have done that had she not, you know, kind of pushed me and be like, no, right. let's go for it. And she so removed the restrictions from your own mindset. It sounds like. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So I want to fast forward to um, the lifestylist. Um, yeah. Tell me about how, yeah, how did you, you know, pursue this? How did it get started? Um, are you profitable yet? Are you gonna be profitable sure, one day? Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm so grateful and fortunate that I had School of Style to support me through the transition, and I still, um, you know, still work at School of Style. Although I'm. Uh, now going to relinqu- relinquish my CEO title and status at the company and Lauren is going to take over as CEO shortly just because it's more in alignment with her brand and she's still into fashion and I'm not. I've totally right. dipped out of the industry and stuff. So um, I was really fortunate when I wanted to do my podcast because 
I didn't have like a corporate job that I still had to have. I had flexibility with my schedule. And as long as I just showed up at school of style and did what was required, I had enough income from the school to pay all of my living expenses and also to fund some of the initial expenses of the podcast when it was um, in the red, you know, as it is for a while when you start a new thing like that. So I'm, I'm really fortunate to have that backup. Uh, I see a lot of our students at School of Style or people that want to become, you know, an influencer or personality or content producer, etc. And they're in a career that they don't like, that's not fulfilling or that is indeed stressing them out or just driving them crazy. And they can't escape because they need that paycheck. And there's this perpetual sort of hamster wheel that they get stuck on. And right. luckily for me, that wasn't the case. I was able to somehow squeeze out the time and energy from the school to go focus on my podcast and thankfully I had a business partner that although she's gotten really annoyed with me (laughs) because I haven't been present a lot and we had to work that out too uh, and you know make some arrangements that made that more fair but she was supportive of me because she knows this is my dream and I love talking about spirituality and meditation and health and I mean this is like my heart you know whereas fashion is cool and I appreciate it as an art form but I don't wake up in the morning and look at Vogue.com. Like I wake up in the morning and read a meditation book and do, you know, it's like, I'm just not into it. So the Lifestyleist podcast in terms of a business model, I somehow managed, I think I've taken enough online courses and I've worked with a couple of business coaches. I got the concept that I would have to have this business go in different phases, you know? And so it was never my intention to make the podcast in and of itself like the business or the brand. The business is me, my ass, this mug, Luke's story, whatever that ends up evolving into. I'm still not even sure what I am or how to build myself because I'm into (laughs) so many different things in personal development. But the first phase was uh, this was my plan. And for anyone listening that's interested in you know, producing content and eventually monetizing, I think this is a good way to go is you have to really, I got whiteboards out. I made five whiteboards, put them on the wall and I phase one, two, three, four, five. And then I bulleted out what uh, income streams or what uh, avenues of content I was going to put out in each of those phases. And, you know, it changes, of course, and it evolves. But I did know that in the very beginning, the first phase was step one, Record a bunch of podcasts. I think I got like 20 episodes recorded. And then I had a strategy that I worked out with my business coach at the time, who's Dave Asprey, the founder and CEO of Bulletproof, Bulletproof Coffee. And so he had a successful podcast. I was working with him doing executive coaching. And he's like, yeah, if you've got a bunch recorded, put out 10 in a row for 10 days. And that way it gives you leverage with iTunes. You get a lot of downloads really fast. And then you could go really quickly and tell like a big name guest like oh yeah I've already got 10 shows out oh. you know those 10 shows came out in 10 days so I kind of gamed the system a little bit and got a little push and a little Slide. momentum yeah and once I pulled the trigger and and did that the first phase was just consistently and anyone that does content will tell you consistency is king and I knew that and so I just made a commitment every Tuesday I don't care if it's the freaking zombie apocalypse I'm putting out a show every Tuesday <laughs> No matter what, I don't care. Literally, if I'm like on my deathbed, I will yeah. sit there and get do an iPhone voice memo. Okay, today's podcast is and <laughs> click submit to iTunes. Like I'm not missing it. So I got the consistency, but there was no chance of monetization because I had no credibility and no audience. So right. I knew I've got to put out really high quality content with some degree of consistency and regularity in order to build a loyal enough following where 
I've got enough downloads to then uh, facilitate bringing on advertisers on the show that pay. So how I transition from spending $2,500 to $3,000 a month out of pocket to produce my podcast, which is how much it costs to do my show wow. and the, the things that support it. It's really expensive it is. because I do it right. You can do it really cheap or for free. It shows. You're going to have a crappy podcast. And yeah, I, I'm just too competitive. I'm like, I want to <laughs> sound like, you know, I want to be up there with Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and Rich yeah. Roll and Dave. Like, I want to have one of the biggest podcasts in the world. So it needs to sound like that. And right. in fact, I got to say, my sound, even when I started, <laughs> was better than some other big shows. You know? I was like, all right, I'm going to, because I was a musician. So yeah. I understand microphones and yeah. all that stuff. So thank God I knew how to do that. So anyway doing getting the content out and then another thing i did strategy wise that i think was useful was i started running ads on my show from the beginning i noticed that yeah even though they weren't paying so what i was doing is i was giving brands free ads oh, so that a i was wondering about that well i'm did you I'm tell all, them first no here's no i don't ask for permission <laughs> <laughs> i ask for forgiveness <laughs> it's a good way to, i mean it's free for them i mean you can't imagine yeah mad. yeah yeah. Well, here's here's the deal. No, the first thing I did is okay. I need to get all these as big as many big names as I can. Like right. so, I went for I stretch goals, man. I tried to get all the biggest people in health and spirituality and stuff. Okay, and I got a few big names starting out of the gate, which helped. But then I started reaching out to all the brands for all the products I use. I mean, there's my clear light sauna behind me. Right. I have a cupboard full of at any given time probably a hundred supplements that are really high quality, and I've vetted them. I know all the yeah. best stuff. It's like. Maybe it's my drug pass. Like I find the best <laughs> dealer in town. Like yeah. I know who makes the best the best vitamin K two. I know who makes the best sauna, the best this, the best that. And I it's I pride myself in right. vetting and researching and finding the best people. Right. So I started reaching out to the brands that I'm a consumer of and saying, Hey, I want to do affiliate deal with you. So I'd sign up as an affiliate with all those brands, like Bulletproof Coffee, for example. They were one of the first ads that I ran. So there was a multifaceted uh, strategy there. A, I wanted the audience to get indoctrinated into me having ads at the beginning of the show from the beginning. I didn't want to spring it on them after they're addicted to the show after the right. first year and think like, oh, now he's getting greedy. Right. I'm like, no, dude, there's ads on my show. I'm doing this shit for free. <laughs> also, it made my show sound more legitimate if I was it like, did. and today's episode is brought to you by Bulletproof Coffee. It really and my did. show's <laughs> been up for them advertiser. I didn't. I ran their ad for free. Does the brand give a shit that I'm giving them free advertising? No, they love it. Right. But I made a little money. It was a you know a weak monetization, but it was a beginning. Right. So if somebody bought some bulletproof coffee, I'd make twenty dollars or something, right? Yeah. As the audience grew, the affiliate commissions that I get from those brands started to uh, go up. And even now, I get PayPal's. I'm like, I just made eight hundred dollars. Sick. <laughs> That used That's to be amazing. $8 wow. like a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm like, wow, give me a couple more years. That'll be $8,000. Do you ever get, are you at a point now where do you ever get approached by sponsorship deals or um, advertisers that are not like in alignment with your purpose that you're serving? Like, I don't know. Well, next, I'm really excited because next something. week I'm taking on uh, McDonald's and Coca-Cola as advertisers. <laughs> I would <laughs> literally they're gonna think pay that, me enough. Yeah, no. it would all be um, over. You know, I think because my subject matter is so niche and I'm, yeah. my lane is narrow in a sense because I'm not, I'm not talking about sports or politics or, right. you know, how to make a go-kart or whatever. Right. Like I'm, 
don't know where that came from. I'm very much <laughs> focused on like health and spirituality. So the brands that have approached me right. have been in alignment so far. There was okay. one, and that's my newest advertiser that just cold called me, um, called Health IQ, and they're a life insurance company. Okay, and I was I've like, heard of them. yeah, but I was like, nah, I don't know. That sounds kind of corporate and weird. Like I, no, I'm usually no, advertising, actually, you know, yeah. supplements or health devices or something. But I got on a call with uh, with one of their chiefs and. He explained what they do, and uh, the way it works is they're a, a broker or an agency, and they shop around for a life insurance policy for you. But what's sick is, and what's in alignment with my brand, is you get like up to a 58% discount on your life insurance if you're super healthy. Yes. So you can send them like your gym membership, your Fitbit statistics of how much you jog. If you're right. like a vegan, it's cheaper. It's really cool. So yeah. it actually incentivizes the customer to take better care of themselves because it's less of a burden on the company issuing the insurance because you're yeah. less likely to die, right? <laughs> right. It's brilliant. So I was like, it that's be... actually a, a business model that I really want to support. So it's even though it's very kind of corporate and medically, right. I was for a second, like, I don't know if this is going to fit, but once I talked to them and found out, um, but that was probably the most left field. Um, I was just approached yesterday by a company who does really high quality organic textiles and they make these like beyond organic sheets and bedding and things Ooh. like that. I was like, oh, that's sick. That's something <laughs> to be really useful. I want them, you know, that's right. hard to find really good um, bedding that's truly organic. A lot of the organic labeling is very dubious. Yes. So they sent me their whole spiel. I was like, cool. And I think I have a call with them tomorrow to see if, you know, it works. But just by looking at their site, I'm like, yeah, that's a perfect match. And the audience is going to be stoked because those are the type of things that people don't want to spend the time and energy to vet themselves. Like, I'm the only geek that wants to sit there and, like, research every natural betting <laughs> website and, like, look for their certifications and, like, go deep there. Um yeah. So, yeah, so far, but there will come a time where someone's like, hey, you know, we want you to run ads on your show for this thing that I don't really believe in or isn't right. healthy or if there's some lack of integrity there, then there's no way I can do that because I'm not be trying to be like Mr. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds like self-righteous thing, but I literally just couldn't live with myself to do that. I'm, yeah. I just have been working on my own integrity for too long to just take money for something that doesn't align with me uh, right. inside. But, uh the uh, the other piece of like when the business turned to um, turn to become more profitable to the original question mm -hmm. is about six months in I had been running these free ads that no one knew were free yeah and then I started reaching out to some of the brands that I had run free ads for and been like hey I've been running these ads for free <laughs> how, how are sales looking and they're like dude shit you're, you you oh, actually really? convert yeah and so they could see my conversions because That's my awesome. audience is very, as we say in the industry, very compliant. Yeah. You know, you have like people that are popular on social media and then you have people that are influencers, right? right. Being popular and having influence are different things. Turns out for whatever reason, based on my delivery and personality and enthusiasm and yeah. expertise in some cases, uh, my audience is very compliant and I'm very influential. When I say like, I found the best <laughs> thing, buy it, they buy it. I believe you, so. I've bought like, a handful of supplements that you've mentioned. Awesome. I have a Juve red light in my, yeah, in my you got apartment. The Juve? I have it. Oh, dude, I love. Doesn't it feel good? It's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's, it's so good for your skin too. Yes. That's why I always tell women they're like, I don't want testosterone. I'm like, a, you do no. need 
higher testosterone in most cases. Superficial reasons. I'm like, give it to me. (laughs) Oh, it's really good for your skin. Yeah, Yeah. it it literally. There's all these white papers on how it um, removes wrinkles. It um, heals scars. It heals acne. It prevents acne. It's insane. Yeah, I think it also helps with um, like female hormonal stuff too. Because I've had a lot of of thyroid issues that I think it's helping with as well. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Red light therapy is absolutely scientifically vetted up and down. Like you cannot disprove its efficacy. It's just absolutely 100% yeah. legit. And out of all the devices that I've explored, Juve is the best and also the most affordable. Some of those devices are like $150,000. Oh, I mean really? like Oh yeah, that's there's a, there's one that's a whole like tanning bed. They have it at Bulletproof Labs and yeah. it's 150 yeah. grand. Oh. It's awesome, yeah. but like you know, who's going to spend that? Yeah. I'm not there yet. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that then, yeah. so that was the so that was all uh, really phase one was uh, you know establishing as many affiliate relationships as I could even though they didn't really become meaningful until yeah. after a while and then running free ads then converting those ads into paid ads and then the next phase in terms of monetization was to roll out a coaching program where I work with people one on one which I've been doing for a long time anyway I just never oh, talked about it oh, yeah okay. And so uh, that still is a means to an end. I mean, honestly, right now I have probably 15 emails in my coaching email folder that I, I open them. I'm like, ah, and I just run and never answer them. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. And I put oh, my God. head back in the sand because I just I can't take anything on right now. It's so it's yeah. I knew that it wasn't scalable and really sustainable to do the coaching. Yeah. But, you know, it's. It, it helps support the other things that I'm doing. And so right. I'm still in kind of phase two there and coaching is part of that. And then another part of phase two is speaking at as many events as I can, being on other podcasts, yes. uh, sharing my expertise um, as an individual um, in addition to highlighting other people that are guests on my show. So last year I think I did like 15 speaking engagements and I multi-purpose those and turn most of them into a podcast episode where I just talk, which is yeah. a great way for my audience to get to know my perspective more. And uh, and then I have my first online class coming out uh, this summer, which is kind of moving into more phase three, where there's uh, you know paid online communities and online courses and doing paid retreats and things like that, which I'll for get into kind of later this year. What's that? For the Lifestylist podcast, you're doing classes? Um. It's just like Luke's story presents. Oh, so cool. the, the first the first class that I'm going to be presenting is just going to be a really it'll be like ninety seven dollars, but yeah. crazy value yeah. added. Like it's going to be a thousand dollar class that's a hundred dollars basically. Yeah. But it's uh, I got a site called um, biohackmytravel.com, okay. and there's nothing there's nothing on there yet. But that's where the online course will live, and it's. Uh, it's a course that teaches every single thing I've ever learned to minimize the negative effects of air travel, car awesome. travel, hotel travel. Because I love to travel, but it just wrecks me. So yeah, for the past yeah. 20 years, I've been adding all of these different devices and supplements and practices to my protocol. And I've yeah. put like put all of it into this crazy online course. So I'll see how that one goes. And if people respond, which I think they will, then I'll start making will. more of those and do things that are more scalable because – I find with the coaching, it's it's fun and it's rewarding to really help someone move through blocks um, right, on right. different <laughs> levels, metaphysically and physically, but you can still only help one person at a time. And it's like, I know I have more to offer than just getting on a Skype with someone once a week and kind right. of guiding them through 
a period in their life, I'd like to be able to do that for 10,000 people at once, you know, yeah. so. I think you could. And also the, and also the retreats of like going somewhere really yeah. special, Bali or Costa Rica or Hawaii or wherever and having a full immersion for a couple of weeks where I take people and sequester them from their phones and their lives and yeah. teach them the life, the ultimate lifestyle in person where they get to do it more experientially. Very cool. So that's kind of what's going on with that. Yeah, not, not too much, right? You're definitely, you've got a packed schedule. Oh um, my God, yeah. <laughs> so shifting gears here a little bit. Sure. Can you tell me a bit about, like, what is the biggest failure or mistake that you've made in your life that you, that at the time was like so devastating to you that today you can look back at and say, oh, it was like a really amazing growing experience or a really amazing learning experience. Oh my God. Let me count the waves. <laughs> I feel like you're going to have a really good one. <laughs> oh man. You know what's, you know, it's funny. I have made a practice out of not really energizing thoughts that they can regret beating myself up and kicking myself in the ass because, oh, I should have done that. Like, I try not to should myself, right. as they say, should on myself. Um, one of my regrets, honestly, is not taking better care of my teeth. <laughs> that sounds crazy. Your teeth. But your teeth. Yeah. Yeah, these, these things right here. <laughs> I was told I was supposed to wear a night guard, and I thought they were just trying to scam me at the Korean freaking, um, you know, like just little ghetto dentist I went to and down the street on Wilshire. Yeah. It's like, oh, you need you need night guard. You're grinding your teeth. $700. I was like, Psh, $700. I'm not getting that shit. Oh, no. Then I went years, and a bunch of my teeth decayed from all the drug use and stuff, and then I ended oh, up wow. just having so much expensive, painful dental work done. I just had a $5,000 zirconian oh. Implant put in, it was brutal, like the whole thing. And yeah, I, the dentist, when I was getting the implant, he showed me like with the mirror the inside of your mouth, and I was like, Oh, oh my, my god, I, I'm like, I have no teeth left, they're all just porcelain oh. inlays and fake made up. I mean, my front teeth are like real, but they're yellow and chipped. And yeah, it's one of those things your parents tell, like, Oh, take care of your teeth, you don't get new ones. I was like, Eh. And then you never know. Uh, yeah. So that was a that was a mistake. I mean, if I could go back, I would have not let things get to the point of a root canal and like really right. made dentist visits a more regular part of my life. Um, that's a more superficial mistake, I guess, a regret. Yeah. Um, what about in terms uh, of your business? Like, was there anything? Yeah. Like, you know what has been difficult with me in business? It's not like a single event kind of mistake, but it took me a long time to really get clear about my numbers. And to have clarity about how much money's going out, what it's going out for, how much money's coming in, yeah. having really solid record keeping, uh, paperwork, you know, organization, Dropbox folders, scanning receipts, having everything there, yeah. um, and really having competent bookkeepers and accountants and just having all of that stuff on lock, taxes, really being tight with all that stuff. Um, that's been something that has been uh, difficult to learn and put into yeah. practice. I'm I'm really good with it now. I'm I'm super super organized uh, in that regard. But along with that, when I was a stylist, yeah, this is actually so. There's that, which is just more of the clarity and having systems for finances yeah. and all that. Um, but I think yeah, another actually, I do have another regret, even more meaningful than yeah. jacking my teeth, uh, is my relationship to debt and credit I really hurt myself really bad in fact last night I just added up the credit card debt that I still have left yeah. a couple of years ago I found myself like 
around $80,000 in credit card debt. I'm paying $1,000 a month in interest, just literally taking 10 $100 bills at the first of every month and throwing them in an incinerator. And this you racked up during what period of time? Well, here's what what happened. A, I just was very compulsive, like addictive kind of shopper. I'm just like, cool, I'm going to Barney's to buy a freaking $3,000 leather jacket. Literally, I don't have the money, but I I used to... (laughs) This is how I perceived a line of credit is that... Say you have $50,000 in available credit on your cards. Yeah. The way my mind used to conceptualize that was that I literally have $50,000 liquid cash. Oh, God. <laughs> Not a line of credit. I mean, yeah. I was like, yeah, I have that money. That's right. my money. No, right. Bank of America has that money. Chase right. has that money, and they're going to loan it to me and then, by my own volition, rape me for in exorbitant interest rates from 18 to 27% or something after I borrowed that money, I didn't get that concept for a long time. And I didn't have the discipline to restrain myself if I wanted to take a trip or I wanted to buy something. I was like, oh, how much credit do I have on my credit card? I'm like, I can afford it. Yeah. And that was my mentality. And so I got I got buried and then I got it got so deep that I couldn't get out and then I felt really ashamed about it. And then I would buy something I couldn't afford and I kind of knew it because I started yeah. to become aware of it. Then because I felt ashamed then I would go buy something to feel better about feeling ashamed because I bought something that I couldn't afford. <laughs> oh, yeah. This vicious cycle of, of like just debting and kind of compulsive spending and stuff, another sort of manifestation of the addictive personality kind of thing. And, uh, and another way that I really mm-hmm. got into that habit and where there was a lot of confusion and vagueness around money and numbers is when I was a stylist, well, it's still, this is the way it works. When when you are a stylist uh, and you're given a budget for a job, you're giving your day rate, right? So you make $1,000, $2,000 a day or whatever, right? And okay. that's your rate and that's all fine. Then you're given a budget. Maybe for a music video, the budget say $10,000. The way that it works in our industry is you have to have a really fat line of credit, like maybe $150,000, $200,000 on your credit cards, right? Okay. And then you go out and you buy all this stuff at the stores, and then you take it to the job. The client keeps whatever the client keeps or uses oh. on that gig. Then you go return everything, and it's credited. All your returns go back on your credit cards. Then you turn in an invoice and all your receipts to the client, and they reimburse you. Interesting. So you, as a stylist, by default, you act as a financier for every job that you do, and then you right. get paid back which is all fine if you have the credit, but here's where it can get tricky if you're (laughs) not paying attention. And this is how I initially got in that hole is say I would go do a job and the budget's $10,000. I spend that money. I turn in my receipts. The client reimburses me. They give me a check for $10,000 and I put that in my checking account. And then I kind of forget that that money is not my $10,000. That's $10,000 that I owe to my credit card. Right. And then that happens a few times over the course of a couple of years. And next thing you know, like I got $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 sitting in my checking account. And a friend's like, hey, dude, I'm taking a trip to Brazil for two weeks. You want to go? First class, let's roll. I'm like, yeah, I got the money. <laughs> no, I don't have the money in reality. Yeah. Yeah. I have... I have borrowed money right. that now is at 18%, 27% interest, and I'm unaware of that. And then, so I go spend that cash that I've been reimbursed with, and so enters this cycle of a lot of my styling career. Which, you know, I'm glad I took those arrows because that's right. one of the things we really teach our students at School of Style is like, yo, man, yes. you better really wake up to the fact that you have a lot of liability there, and it's a very awesome slippery slope when you start dealing with a lot of money like yeah. that, too. You're getting huge checks. Right. Uh, reimbursement checks and checks for your rate and um, sometimes there's periods where you make a ton of money 
And so you think, oh, I'd make X amount of dollars a year now, but that's only for that year. The next year things slow down and you kind of tank and right. you know, living above my means. So I'd say in my adult life, aside from my teeth, which is more of a superficial <laughs> sort of choke, uh, is really being irresponsible with money and debt and spending awesome. and things like that. Uh, now, fast forward to having identified that issue, I literally record every penny that I spend every really? single day. Every penny. Wow. I save every single receipt. I have four Dropbox folders. If it's a personal, uh, if it's a personal income, business income, personal expense, business, all my credit cards are separate. I cut up all my credit cards except for my two business cards because I get miles on those. Uh, I only buy things cash. I only use my debit card. I do not buy anything unless I have the money. Somebody wants me to take a trip. I check my checking account if I have liquid cash money to pay for the entire trip to travel in the way that I want to travel, which can be high maintenance, then I don't go. I <laughs> save up you. the money. Yeah, that's awesome. And so at 47 years old, I'm finally learning how to operate financially as an adult, and it, it yeah. feels really good. I have yeah. a lot more emotional and mental balance, and I'm less shamey and weird yeah. about that. And I talk about it openly when the situation is appropriate as it is now. And I think it can be really helpful to other people that are kind Absolutely. of doing that stuff because I'm the one that's, I really screwed up my life. I mean, I wouldn't even want to know how much interest I've paid on credit cards. <laughs> like, it would be too depressing to yeah. know. I mean, it's $1,000 a month for years. So right. add that up. It's yeah. not, it doesn't feel very good. But that's what motivates me to change my behavior and right. really like get, you know, um, become more aware and responsible and it's just it's a lot more emotionally balanced feeling to really have an awareness of where I, where I am with all of that and to have a very supportive team that's like keeping all the numbers where they should be and having a great CPA and you know being strategic about taxes and things like that so it feels good to finally be learning it but man it took me a while <laughs> well congrats on making it making a huge Thank you. financially Thank um, you. I want to be mindful of your time. Do you, do you have a hard stop, or can I ask you? Uh, no, I'm good. Questions? I'm chilling. Okay, cool. We um, have some people on Instagram hanging out with us over oh, here. Nice. Fun. Yeah, I but I always put the camera, uh, you know, the phone sideways though, because you can get more in the frame. So I can never, oh. I, I can never see the comments, <laughs> you know. But oh, it's your cool. show, so the comments don't matter. Okay, cool. Um, oh, yeah. I know you have an, like an extensive ritual of, you know, morning ritual of like all your biohacking devices and supplements and this and that. What would you say are like your favorite three? Well, I just interviewed a gentleman named uh, Light Hopkins, who's a veteran meditation teacher. And we were talking about Vedic meditation, which is the, the style of meditation that I practice. And absolutely my number one non-negotiable is meditation. I do that twice a day. In fact, I was thinking about my time. I just looked at the clock at six o'clock. I'm like, only thing I have committed to is my second meditation. Yeah. So uh, that's the number one. Um, I recommend that is it's free. That's the ultimate biohack, you know. And I get a lot of emails from people that are like, and it's not like I'm an even exceptionally wealthy guy. I mean, I do okay. I wouldn't consider myself by any stretch rich at this point, although I will be soon. Um, <laughs> and that, and I'm very pleased to announce that. Uh, but I'd be happy whether or not I was rich or not because I've been poor as hell and really happy. But people will write in and be like, oh, that's cool for you. Like you get all these devices for free or you get a discount or you can afford them or whatever. Yeah. How can someone like improve their health and well-being for for cheap? And I'm like, uh, dude, meditate. Like meditation is the most free uh, and most powerful thing that you can do to benefit your life. So 
I literally meditate every single morning without fail for at least 20 minutes, usually about 20 to 30 minutes, with the exception of days where I'm going to my 9 o'clock Kundalini yoga class. Those days I'll wake up, I'll sit there for maybe five minutes and, you know, just kind of like get grounded. And then I drive over there, but that's an hour and a half of really deep meditation and breath work and things like that. So those are the only days that I feel like I don't need to be redundant and kind of stack those. Although if I get up early enough, I'll meditate for 20 minutes and then I'll go to an hour and a half Kundalini class and do more prayer and meditation and singing and chanting and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, So meditation, number one, I would say number two, and I'm going to throw in one that is not cheap or free. It's $7,500. Uh, and that's a device called the Ant Coil, which is a... I need one of those. Just, uh, I mean, it's like, I feel like I have a freaking Ferrari in the garage, and I've only just, like, turned the key on, you know, and yeah. just revved it up a couple times. It's It's got a lot of potential in terms of the different things that you can use it for. Very cool. But the Ant Coil is a combination of uh, what's called biofeedback and PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic field. So... Essentially, it sends sound and vibration frequencies into your body through a magnetic coil that's a really great delivery system to get things deep into your cells. And the frequencies do different things from nourishing organs to balancing your chakras and your energetic um, uh, system to cleansing pathogens and metals and things like that. So it's like a cleansing device, uh, a nourishing device, and also a very transformative consciousness device because of what it does to the nervous system and your brain waves so i stack the amp coil sessions on my meditation also so there's one free one well i guess if you really (laughs) want to learn to meditate you probably would pay a teacher i think that's best but it's not but it's not a reoccurring payment you know you learn once and then you're done you you have your practice for life uh and then the amp coil and i could give another one (laughs) i mean honestly this is kind of like superficial but drinking a bulletproof coffee after meditation there's an asterisk there after meditation don't drink caffeine and then try to meditate it's not going to happen so you have to wait until after but uh, when i started on bulletproof coffee and everyone you know my friends make fun of me (laughs) because i've been the poster child of bulletproof and have done a lot of work with them and stuff but when dave asprey kind of invented the idea slash got the idea from these um these mountain people in the Himalayas that make a yak butter tea, which is essentially like a hot herbal drink with really good healthy fats in it. He saw that they had this sustained energy and he thought, aha, maybe I could get healthy fats into coffee and make a delicious coffee that gives you this amazing sustained energy and all these healthy fats. When I got on that coffee, um, which was like, I guess probably six years ago or something like that, my whole health just totally changed and I stopped craving carbohydrates and I stopped craving sugar and um, it just made me kind of by default ketogenic, which, you know, I don't know if your listeners will know what that is, but you become a fat burning biological system rather than burning sugar or glucose from eating carbs and fruit and, you know, grains and bread and all that kind of stuff. So I pretty much stopped eating gluten, I cut down on sugar, I lost a bunch of weight, I had this crazy energy all day, so whether or not one would drink a bulletproof coffee per se, or just a really great herbal elixir or hot drink, the point is you want something medicinal, which caffeine and the coffee bean is medicinal, or some kind of herb or mushroom, 
But combining that with the healthy fats like the brain octane oil, which is a derivative of coconut oil, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a certain type of MCT. Uh, drinking like an MCT uh, or coconut or ghee or grass-fed butter, like hot drink in the morning, is one of the biggest things you can do for your energy, and it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, I put so many people on just one cup of bulletproof coffee in the morning, a month goes by, and they're like, dude, this changed my life. I mean, it's weird, but it really does, because it, it gives you such mental power and physical energy, and it lasts yeah. for a really long time, and you don't get that, like, the crash, weird yeah. anxiety and the crash yeah. and the mood swings that a lot of people get from coffee. They think that they can't drink coffee and caffeine but it's just because they're drinking swag coffee right. and it's not mixed with fat so it's yeah. so jarring to your system when you like i would never drink a black coffee yeah. unless i'm really really tired or maybe after dinner i might have an espresso or something like that but yeah. when i see people like getting one of those big gulp iced coffees from starbucks i'm like oh my god i would like be <laughs> homicidal i would yeah, like I lose my shit now. if i drink one of those oh my god. so much caffeine and when there's no fat in it it just it just absorbs right into your bloodstream and you're, it's like shooting up caffeine. So totally. I would not advise drinking coffee <laughs> black and definitely coffee that's not organic that could have mold and things like that. But right. yeah, the meditation, the amp coil, the bulletproof coffee, if I had to pick three that I wouldn't give up, that would probably be them. Awesome. Um, I have two more questions for you. Cool. One. This is fun, by the way. I'm having a great time. Are you time. It? Okay, good. Oh, it's amazing. It's yeah, also I love really it. great to hear you like as like your like business insider tips here. It's like really cool. I love talking about it because I, I have a lot of experience with I've had a very wide range of experience in my you life. Really from, have. I've noticed from that. the dark to the light and I I've amassed a lot of experience and knowledge and yeah. so I love to share things that I don't get a chance to talk about. And awesome. especially since I'm usually the host. I work really hard to rest restrain myself and not step on the guest, even though sometimes I, I do because it's hard not to. <laughs> so when I'm on someone else's show, I'm like, oh, my God, finally, I get to talk. <laughs> Let it Unbridled, out. you know, just yeah. cut loose. So it's fun. Let I appreciate it. Lose. it. Um, how do you measure success and do you consider yourself successful today? Oh, that's a great question. I think for me, success is... It's relevant to and contingent on how much I'm able to love and accept myself. You know, that's yeah. that's how I gauge my own success is like when I look in the mirror, how much shame is still there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, how much self-loathing and all of that nastiness is still present. The more that I can overcome that, the more successful I feel inside. So success is not so much uh, for me about what's accomplished and manifest externally, but it's about not even about what I do, like, oh, I do this cool podcast or I run this cool fashion school. It's more about who I am. Yeah. And who I'm becoming, the man that I'm becoming and that I have integrity, that I I am who I say I am and that I'm I'm real, you know, yeah. and I, I always say like I would I'd much rather be respected than liked. I don't really care if people like me. All the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and just what, some feedback that I get a lot, which makes me feel successful, is people say, "Man, I love your delivery because it's so real. You're just you're so authentic." Yeah. And I get I get that specific feedback so often, and that's such a high compliment. I mean, it warms my heart to hear that because I think the most unattractive thing 
not, well, not the most. I mean, maybe like just being hateful and violent and all of that is probably the most unattractive human trait. But one of the things that I really am turned off by is when people are really phony. Right. That's why I have like a really hard time with most politicians is they're just <laughs> such liars and they're so fake. Yeah. They're just like, you're so full of shit and newscasters and just the media and just, <laughs> oh, living in Hollywood, there's so much facade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think um, when I'm just able to care about myself and respect and love myself enough to be authentic and real and vulnerable, that that feels successful to me because I'm awesome. becoming someone that I'm able to really accept and, and I acknowledge my faults and weaknesses to myself and outwardly to others but i also appreciate the talents that i have the skills that i have and the things that i've been able to overcome in my life i always say if you go for respect all the right people will end up loving you anyways and if you go for love you'll you won't get respect from anyone you know what i mean yeah everyone love you no one's going to respect you anyways yeah and i've and i've struggled a lot in my life with just being addicted to approval and wanting to be popular and and to be liked and to be accepted and all that stuff and i used to be such a people pleaser and a doormat in so many ways and just going along with things that i want a lot when i was younger and it's just like i'm not having that anymore i know who i am and how i want to spend my time and the people with whom i want to spend it and so the more i can really just be true to myself and kind of have a hard hard line there um i think i i feel more accomplished but then the funny thing is is the more the more i'm grounded in that state of being the more success i have on the outside with business right. and financial things like that it's like things just sort of start to come my way and happen weird, without right? much effort yeah yeah, yeah it's sort of cool. like it's a, there really is such a correlation between you know, how much outer success and material success I really feel at the core that I deserve and the more that I feel like I deserve that, not in an entitled way, but it's earned, an earned deserving, not an entitled deserving, that the more shows up because the universe is like, oh, really? You think you're the shit? All right, we're going to pay you like you're the shit. (laughs) Right. And it's true. I mean, like I said, I get random PayPals. I'm like, wow, I just made a nice (laughs) chunk of money. I really don't even remember what it was for. Just, oh, another check came. I'm I'm doing this thing lately, too, just as an exercise where, because I really struggled with poverty thinking and limited thinking and really trying to move toward a more abundant material mindset. I'm working really hard at it. One of the things I do is throughout the day, I just kind of visualize like more of those PayPal emails coming in, just like ding, ding, (laughs) ding, ding. There's just like money flying in from all directions all the time. And it's it's kind of actually working. I bet you it would work. I promise you it will work. It's interesting. It's interesting to watch that. Yeah, I'm like, wow, I used to talk about like, oh, you need multiple streams of income and stuff. I'm like, whoa, I actually have that. (laughs) I mean, of course, I want to turn up the volume on that, but it's a a good start right now. Awesome. Um, What is a valuable piece of advice that you would give to other entrepreneurs that are starting their businesses with a conscious intention like yours? Well, the intention is everything. You know, it's like. I think in any endeavor, whether it be entrepreneurial, business, or otherwise, even entering into any kind of a relationship, be it romantic, friendship, business, whatever, is the intention is everything. And that's going to determine not only the outcome of success, but the outcome of inner fulfillment and reward for that venture. In other words, if I'm entering into a situation because I want to get something out of it, I'm going to lose. Because the inherent uh, quality of selfishness can never be satisfied 
no matter what milestone you get to, you feel like you've never arrived because that selfish, insecure, rapacious kind of taker energy is present. So the number one thing would be setting the intention as I want to contribute as much value as possible in any given situation. And that also means that I want to uh, receive value and compensation out of it too. Like when I started my podcast, it was like, cool, I think I'll drop three grand a month just so everyone has a nice podcast to listen to. Right. Like, I'm not that I'm not that nice of a guy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I know mine's coming, but my right. first intention was like, I know a lot of cool stuff that's very powerful if you apply it to your life, and I think I can reach people in a way that's unique because I can reach the geeky biohackers that are into the science and all that stuff, yeah. and I can find the PhD neuro you know, neurologists, they're going to teach them and I can take the woo woo, like crazy UFO people and kind of reel them in (laughs) to make them relatable. And, and I saw that I had a a skill to be able to do that. But my intention was to help all of those experts reach a bigger audience and to help the audience to get exposed to really powerful principles that can help their lives. And so because that intention of giving and contributing was at the root of it, the law of reciprocity has swung back around. And now I'm like, Oh, cool. I just got a really weird, great mystery (laughs) PayPal, you know? Right. So um, that would be my advice is like setting the intention on contributing and giving. But also in addition to that, and this is really a big one that I've had to teach so many School of Style students is that you, and it's so corny, you know, it's like probably every like, you know, entrepreneur seminar or speaker says something to this effect, but the paralysis of analysis will kill you. You just you just have to do it. It's yes. like doing it, whatever it is, launching your thing and right. doing it wrong is a million times more successful than waiting and planning and planning and right. planning and then doing it right. Because no matter how long you wait and plan to launch your venture, it's going to come out sloppy anyway. Yeah, so why don't you just perfect. start now and just be hella sloppy and just totally <laughs> suck Right. But at least you're at least you're someone who's doing it and sucking instead of someone who's talking about it, planning about it, trying to be a perfectionist at something. And I really learned that with School of Style. It's like I just I sat on it for about six months and I had a lot of doubt. And finally, I was like, whatever, dude, I'm just going to put an ad on Craigslist. And I started taking people's money. My class was two hundred eighty dollars. And like I said, I think I don't know, 10, 12 people signed up and I took that money and spent it because I had bills due, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, snap, now I have to actually do the class. And that right. motivated me to make the PowerPoint and get the location and make my little workbooks and come up right. with the curriculum. So it's the principle, I think you could summarize as the principle of fire, aim, ready is right. how you do it. Not ready, aim, fire. Don't get ready. You don't have to be ready. Just jump off the cliff and then figure out how to work the parachute. That's one that I'm working on myself right now, so that's a good one. Yeah, and the universe will catch you. And you know what? If yeah. it doesn't catch you and you fall on your ass, then that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Right. That's exactly Oh, right. I wanna I wanna make online classes and be a life coach. Oh, cool. Well so does everyone else. So you're like, right. I don't know, am I, is it gonna work? It might not work. Yeah. So what? Then you're one step closer to getting to be, you know, the owner of an art gallery or whatever right. it was that that is your higher calling yeah, where you can really use that. your skills yeah. and talents uh, in the best way. I mean, I thought I was gonna be a musician and I'm an okay musician, but I'm not, 
I'm not dedicated enough to it to become exceptional, so I stopped. <laughs> I play on Instagram Live. You know? I sit there and like play for 45 people, and it's like that's my little gig. It's good enough. I get, I get to. You're pretty good. Oh, well, thanks, but I get to. Exp- I still express that creativity right. and share it with other people. You know, if I have a little bit of a gift there, but. I had to try that for 15 years and eventually was like, yeah, okay. I guess this isn't really happening for me. I'm not yeah. going to buy a house playing bass. It's not it just it's not going to take me where I want to go in terms of my my end goals of, you know, having a family and some security and yeah. living in a place that's comfortable and looks nice and you know, all the things that I desire. Great. Beautiful words of wisdom from Luke's story. That was awesome. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot, you know, in the context yeah. of of your uh, your goal and you know the position of what you're doing. I, I think there's a lot of stuff there. I don't feel like I left anything out. We we covered some of the physical stuff and <laughs> some of the metaphysical. And yeah. I really, as I said, I, just, I love talking about the business piece because I'm still in business. I didn't go to college or business school, as I said. So, right. like, life is my business school right. every day. I try something and it doesn't work, and I abandon that and start something new. So it's it's really fun for me to be able to uh, talk about that because it helps me uh, helps me sort of put the progress I've made into perspective. I'm like, wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. I've actually accomplished some some cool stuff. It helps give you me the confidence to, to keep going and get on to the next thing that I might be a little res, uh, red as what's the word reticent, reticent in, uh, yeah. in launching or starting, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's been great for me. It's been very therapeutic. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad to hear yeah. And, uh, what's your astrological sign? I'm a double Scorpio. I was born at 7.30 a.m. on October 29th, 1970 in St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Double so I have uh, okay. Moon in Libra, Sun sign Scorpio, and Rising sign Scorpio. I would have totally guessed you were a Gemini rising. Really? Yeah, because you're so communicative. Like, you're totally... Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if your timing's maybe a little off. You radiate. There's definitely some Gemini going on. Interesting. I have yeah. to find my birth certificate. I always ask my mom, like, yeah, when was it born? I think it was 7.30, but my mom's really into it. She did my yeah. charts when I was a kid and stuff like that. But um, she was, like, terrified because... I was, there was like some chance I could have been a triple Scorpio or something. <laughs> they were like, oh, I hope he's not premature or he's going to be the devil, you know. And then I came out a double Scorpio and my grandmother, her mom uh, was named Viola. Yeah. God rest her soul. She was such a sweetie. And uh, and she, they were both just terrified I was going to be this one combination of signs or whatever. And, and then when it was a double Scorpio, they were still terrified. And you know what? I got to say they were so right because I was a handful. I'm like, I wouldn't raise me. Oh, my Aww. God. Oh, my God. I was a sweet kid, but I was freaking <laughs> wild, man. Well, we all have to go through some stuff, right? I call it the slingshot effect. I mean, you're a great example of that. Sometimes life just pulls you so far in one direction so you can catapult you know, to where you're supposed to be. So. Right. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. thank you so much for this. This is really, really awesome. So I'll keep you posted. Oh, good. Keep in touch. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really good to see you again. Yeah. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right.